0: So far, I haven't had any issues and in the sense of with the turnkey vendor or the management company, the management companies have been exceptional, uh, you know responsive, quick, professional. It's great. You know, for somebody who's really busy, this is a great way to invest. Now, I have to say that being a skeptic, we went outside of of your network. We did go to another turnkey vendor. We went to you know their their place where they did their work. They had this beautiful binder with pamphlets, and we looked at it. And then they went to show us the houses, and it was not what I expected. You know, the thing that scared me is we went to an older house. I was thinking this this is a great investment property. They went into the basement, and there was literally a electrical junction box with four wires coming out of one of each side, hanging in midair, hanging in midair. So at that point, it was, well, we're not doing anything with this team of people. And, and we went back. We went back to your organizations because I hate to sound like a commercial, but they're just quality people.
1: Welcome to episode 1160, 1160. This is your host, Jason Hartman, and today we have a 10th episode show where we will be talking with a very well-known author, very popular book, about the new power, and this is an interesting concept to me. And I think it goes in fairly well with a very short, but it should be longer, rant that I am going to share with you. So after our Meet the Masters uh, weekend, we uh, had a Venture Alliance Day, as, as we always do, a sort of a debrief after the event, and we met for breakfast and uh, masterminded for a few hours, then we went to lunch at the uh, super swanky Fig and Olive restaurant and uh, had a, like a two-hour lunch, so it was a great time. But I went on a bit of a rant there, and I don't think I've really shared this with you on the podcast but I, I think it's worth noting, and um, we should go into this in more depth later. But, you know, have you ever heard that old song by Bob Seeger? feel like a number. Okay. And it's all about, you know, uh, how you're just processed, you know, and and I, when I used to train realtors in uh, how to be more successful, I used to talk about how sewage is processed, uh, food is processed, water is processed, all these things are processed, but people don't want to be processed. Thankfully, I know I don't. And it just makes me wonder where have all the craftsmen gone? Where have all the technicians gone? Do you feel this way, as as do I sometimes? Uh, you know, I'll give you one of many examples I see all around me. We used to um, work with, and I, I had him on the show several times, this attorney and We recommended him for a couple of years and, you know, things were fine in the beginning. And then we started hearing some complaints and I was a customer as well. And frankly, I was dissatisfied with the service because he just wanted to go out and glad hand people and be on the speaking circuit and uh, all this kind of stuff. Right. And who is the person that actually sits at their desk and does the work anymore? It is amazing to me how this has just transformed our world in a bad way by the way in a in a sad way you see it all over the place just start thinking about it and being conscious of it. In the Bob Seger song, he says, you know, I feel like a a number, you know, I feel like just another spoke in a a great big wheel, like a tiny blade of grass on a great big field. To workers, I'm just another drone. To Ma Bell, I'm just another phone. I'm just another statistic on a sheet. To teachers, I'm just another child. To the IRS, I'm just another file. I'm just another census on the street. This is the kind of sad service we are facing in today's culture where the guru, if you will, and listen, I can make fun of this industry because I am one to some extent. The guru will go out and glad hand everybody, the rainmaker, bring in the business. They'll sign you up on their subscription program. They'll never let you out of their subscription program, even if you try to cancel a million times. And then they'll hand you off to these really poorly qualified, super junior people, maybe even people in foreign countries uh, many times. And it's just mind-boggling to me that I, I really wonder who actually does the work anymore. Does anybody sit at a desk and actually do technical work? We were talking about CPAs. We were talking about lawyers. We were talking about all of this and how it is just evaporating, you know, where everybody's just out in the public, right? They're on social media, they're, you know, doing all these like public facing things. And they think that you can hand these people that put their trust in you to these minimum wage people that just know nothing about it, that read scripts. It is disgusting. It's almost as bad as leaf blowers. And let me tell you, leaf blowers should be considered a tool of terrorism, okay? But that's another topic, another rant for another day, Tangent Alert, but be mindful of that. When someone wants to sign you up for their uber-expensive coaching program and then put you on a subscription and hand you off to these really just script readers, one of the best weird compliments I got from Gary Pinkerton, who you heard on the show before, he's a longtime client of ours, he said to me one day, and by the way, he was talking about that that attorney I, I was just mentioning, an accounting uh, firm. This person was in both businesses, uh, legal and accounting. And he said, Jason, the one thing I love about you and your company is you have resisted the temptation to get big. And I thought, hmm. I don't know if I should feel good about that compliment. (laughs) It's kind of a backhanded compliment in a way. Uh, Okay, so I'm small. And that's uh, what's good. He he said, Yeah, you know, you have actual high quality people that do work for you. And they're highly paid high quality people. And they know what they're doing. It's not a bunch of script readers and uh, order takers and uh, fulfillment people. You know, these are like actual professionals. And it's just amazing to me how the technician, the craftsman has just disappeared from society. It is uh, just notice this. I want you to notice this. You may have never thought about it before, but now that I've mentioned it, I want you to think about it. I want you to think about it. For those of you who bought live stream tickets, we had a little bit of a problem here with the replay of the live stream. The live stream seems to have worked fine throughout the event last weekend, but a little bit of an issue with the replay, and we are getting that fixed. I think it'll be fixed by the end of the day today, or tomorrow, if not uh, by the end of the day today, so stay tuned on that. Your investment counselor will reach out to you directly, uh, but just wanted to mention it here too. We got a couple of fun things coming up, folks. You know, I want you to plan on spending all your vacations with me and my team. So the next thing, in May, we're going to Savannah, Georgia with the Venture Alliance. If you're not a member, you can come as a guest, a one-time guest, and we are going to center that Venture Alliance retreat weekend in Savannah, Georgia around the subject of tax lien and tax deed investing. I have a good friend who is an expert and she has agreed to come in and speak to the group We'll do our normal stuff too, but there's always kind of a focus of the event and that'll be the focus for May. And before I skip to the next event going in chronological order here, there probably will be another event announced in here, maybe a property tour or something. Not sure yet, but we don't have that on the calendar. So let's move all the way up to November 6th, November 6th of this this year, where we already have our first registrant for our Cuba and Grand Cayman cruise on Holland America lines. That's going to be awesome. That's the best ship that does that cruise, uh, so far as I can tell. That is coming up November 6th. Go to jasonhartman.com slash cruise to see our two cruise events, our two at-sea events coming up. Then the next one is Meet the Masters at Sea, which I hope to do. We'll see if we can pull that off, if we get enough people who will register. That'll be next March. So uh, check those out, jasonhartman.com slash cruise. And uh, hopefully you like uh, cruising as much as I do. I absolutely love cruising. I love going one place and not unpacking again for a week. It's just the best way to travel ever invented. And it's great. You know, the other thing is one of the things that uh, I would really love to do at our various conferences that we hold uh, every year, I would love to be more relaxed and spend more quality time with you because um it would just be awesome. That's what I do with the Venture Alliance. I do a much better job of that there because it's not as crazy as an event like Meet the Masters and I think I'm going to be able to pull that off on week-long cruises where you know we have some learning sessions and then we just relax and have a good time and go on excursions and do special things like that. So I'm really excited about this new focus on cruising. And I hope you're just as excited as I am. We announced that last weekend at Meet the Masters. So jasonhartman.com slash cruise. Check it out. And by the way, you'll love our prices. They are extremely good, extremely reasonable. Actually, they're better than reasonable. They're a bargain. So check it out. Okay, without further ado, let's talk about the new power. It's my pleasure to welcome Jeremy Hymans. He is the co-founder and CEO of Purpose, a global organization headquartered in New York City that builds and supports movements for a more open, just, and habitable world. He is the best-selling author of The New Power, How Power Works in Our Hyper-Connected World, and how to make it work for you. Uh, Purpose has advised organizations such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Google, and UNICEF. He is co-founder of GetUp, an Australian political organization with more members than all of Australia's political parties combined. His book is very interesting. I either read or listened to it, I can't remember, several months back and uh, wanted to get him on the show. So uh, Jeremy, welcome. How are you? It's great to be here. Jason. Good. Good. So the new power this is interesting and I think it's timely given the world in which we live everybody's so connected what in a nutshell is the new power what is the what is the thesis of that
2: New power is really a method of a mindset for thinking about power differently right So Bertrand Russell the British philosopher defined power as the ability to produce intended effects. so really how you get things done in the world. And our argument is that, that there's a new way to do that. So let me give you a simple example of the difference between what we call old power and new power. So for old power, think of Harvey Weinstein, right? So how did Harvey Weinstein for 40 years in Hollywood manage to kind of rule the roost despite the fact that he was committing this spree of abuses that was really an open secret? And now he did that because he wielded old power. He wielded power as currency. He understood that if he hoarded that power up and spent it to punish his enemies, to reward his friends, that he could maintain that position. Now, you think about the Me Too movement, which, of course, was an important part of the demise of Harvey Weinstein. And you see very different dynamics at work. So we think the Me Too movement is an example of new power. Now, new power is less power as currency and more power as current. So it's a surge of energy that gets stronger the more people participate. And if you're trying to harness new power, you know you can't hoard it up and make it your own the way that Harvey Weinstein used old power. You have to learn how to channel its energy to shape it without being able to fully control it. It's also the kind of power that changes as it moves. And that's also a very different thing. Right, right.
1: So new power doesn't have a leader or a typical hierarchical structure, does it?
2: Right. So the forms of new power that we talk about, depending on on how pure the manifestation is, can often not be leaderless, but be leaderful. So you think about a movement like Me Too, and, you know, you can't knock on the door of Me Too and say, you know, I'd like to speak to the head of
1: Me Too. It's decentralized, yeah. yeah.
2: It is, but there are many leaders, right? right. And and those leaders emerge and and exercise all different forms of authority, shaping the norms of these crowds. Mm -hmm. But what we argue is it's just a very different skill leading a crowd Mm -hmm. than leading the people on your payroll. Mm -hmm. And there's a set of skills associated with leading crowds that everybody needs to learn in the 21st century.
1: Sure, sure. Okay, very interesting. So would it be fair to say that, you know, new power kind of depends if it's going to be a big new power, a big a movement, if you will, it depends on virality, it depends on an idea that somehow kindle that spark that turns into a fire, Right.
2: Exactly. No, I mean, it it is about things that spread sideways. Mm -hmm. And it's a very different mindset. So, you know, most organizations and most leaders are kind of steeped in an old power mindset, which is, you know, you drop your ideas down on people, and that's how you communicate. But really, now the things that are spreading, for better and worse, are the things that are carried forward person to person that are kind of allowed to change and metastasize as they move. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that can be both very positive and very negative. So you think about a very negative manifestation of that, you think about ISIS, the way the ideology of ISIS spreads is person to person, right? It isn't an idea that is dropped down from central command and it kind of adapts itself to the different audiences and geographies that that ideology moves to. And that's how it sort of infects people who then get radicalized the same way. Yeah, I mean,
1: Al, you know, you could easily say Al Qaeda was kind of that way too, right? Al Qaeda didn't really have, you know, it had cells. It didn't have like here is the commander, and you know, everybody, you know, it's you didn't have a general for that army, right? You had a bunch of cells, and they were, uh, you know, autonomous, right?
2: Well, that's right, and I think there is a difference between Al Qaeda and, uh, and ISIS. They, they both had that kind of decentralized organizational structure. But ISIS out of this element of really the ideology, the ideas, the memes, those horrific visuals, that was very much transmitted virally person to person as well, mm-hmm. which is why you got these individuals who were radicalized and acted on their own, but, but nonetheless under the broader umbrella of this idea that the Islamic State represented. So it was in many ways even more kind of new power in its mindset and methods than Al-Qaeda, even though both, of course, were advocating for this medieval theocracy
1: basically mm-hmm. yeah, so right. it, it's a funny irony you know that that's a very good point it is a total irony right they had this right sort of, they had this sort of modern power distribution network that was very contemporary yet they're they're advocating for this really oppressive
2: <laughs> right that's right. totally it's, weird yeah talk about irony it, yeah. it is but it's, it's actually you see that a lot you see mm-hmm. some of the most authoritarian players in the world today are actually using a new power sort of toolbox to spread their ideas. And that combination is quite dangerous. We call them in the book the Mm co-opters. Because they're sort of co-opting this energy in ways that serve them.
1: Okay, so someone is listening and they want to start a movement of some sort. How do they do it? What are the skill sets they need to do it? They're very different than the old-fashioned thinking, right? So the
2: sort of skills you need for movement building, I mean, I think the first lesson that we always offer people is, It's not a movement unless it moves without you. So, the idea that you can sort of declare you're starting a movement and it's all about you and it's all about your brand and that millions of people are going to follow behind you is not realistic or strategic. So, you have to think about movements in terms of things that people can really own, they can have a sense of agency around, and that can move without you. You also need to find what we call your connected connectors. These are people who are. Connected to each other and connected to the world. So the, the the company I run is called Purpose. We we do movement building around the world. When we're involved with starting a movement on gun safety with Michael Bloomberg called Everytown, the connected connectors of that movement were mums. They, they were mums who'd started around the country protesting the NRA and protesting you know the sort of the lack of gun safety in the country. They formed a network where they were connected to each other. But as mums, they had incredible power as messengers, so they were connected to the world, and they helped to spread that idea to a much larger group of people than just the original mums that formed the nucleus of that
1: movement. Okay, okay, so how do you know who these connected connectors are? I mean, identifying them is pretty hard, right? Like, everybody wants to... Get some lucky break from an influencer for whatever it is they want to sell or promote or, you know, whatever they want to do. Right. But that isn't like one influencer. It's a bunch of moms. And you're that example. How do you know which mom? I mean, there's a large portion of the world is is moms. Right. How do you know which ones to go to?
2: Well, um, you have to be very careful in your observation, Mm -hmm. right? So a lot of it is, this is not something where you form a top-down strategy and you say, well, sort of inductively, we can imagine that these are the people who are going to be most active. You have to look and see where the energy is, and then you have to cultivate it. What's interesting about the NRA, the the arch rival of, of those moms, is the NRA are actually very good at doing this. So they have a whole ecosystem of passionate gun rights people. And they don't really get in the way of those people. They don't try to say, well, you have to, you know, this is the official message, carry the message. What they actually do is they scan the landscape and they see where some initiative is getting heat. And then they come in and they pour energy and resources on um, when they see that bubbling up. They amplify at that moment. So there's a skill set involved in getting out of people's way, looking to see where that community is bubbling up, And then adding some of what we might think of as old power to kind of get something over the
1: line. Okay. Do you have any more examples other than the moms? I mean, you started with like me too. That was interesting what you said there. But if you could just give a few more examples, because I know I'm kind of struggling with this, like I think other people might be too, because that's a huge part of it, right? Is in that initial kind of core group that, you know, becomes interested in the cause, right?
2: Right. So cultivating those people requires giving them a degree of trust and faith mm-hmm. that um, may feel anathema to many organizations and leaders. I'll make a contrast between two businesses mm-hmm. that I think do this very differently. So, Uber and Lyft. We talk mm-hmm. about this in the book. So, Uber has a kind of acrimonious and mistrustful relationship with its drivers. And its its passengers.
1: (laughs) passengers, Uber is a bully.
2: (laughs) It it sure is. It's fascinating, right? So basically Uber doesn't want its drivers to network with each other or talk to each other, refuses to allow that contact because it's afraid that its drivers will turn against it, will unionize, as some of them are doing now. There was a moment a few years back where Uber announced a price drop, which, of course, that falls straight to the driver who gets less money, and they just drop this news on a Friday, and they say, well, there you go, suck it. Lyft had to do the same thing, because when your competitor does it, you have to match the price. But they did this whole thing where they actually engaged their drivers around, okay, we have to do this, but mm-hmm. what are the ways we can make up for it? What are the benefits we can provide? What are the ways we as a community can make this better? And so they created a collaborative process. So while Uber drivers were picketing it, Lyft drivers were having picnics that were encouraged by companies. So this is just two very different ways to treat a community. And the thing that we argue, what we really break down in the book is like, here are the skills of building that kind of faith and trust
1: with your community, Mm -hmm. no matter who that community is. Any of those you want to share, like any of those skills or did you already share them in what you said? Thinking about it, you know, it's not hierarchical, you know, you don't have control of your brand, you know, thinking about it differently. Were those the skills that you're talking about or was there something else?
2: Well, I think there's a whole bunch, right? So one is how does the leader of a platform, in this case, something like Lyft, what signals are they sending to their community? that it's okay to participate Mm -hmm. because the signals really matter. You have to create an environment where people feel like they have enough power that you can actually speak up and that your voice will be taken seriously. So there's a a piece of work around signaling. There's a piece of work around what we call structuring. What are the structures you put in place to make that participation work? So in this case, it was how are these drivers going to get together and work together to develop solutions in response to this price drop, mm-hmm. what are the structures in which they're gonna coordinate, they're gonna ideate, and how are we gonna then respond to those ideas in a meaningful way? And finally, there has to be something that we call shaping going on. And shaping is really where you want people within the community to start acting like leaders, right? So the shapers have become the kind of guardians of the norms and values of the community. So what you'd wanna see is some drivers emerge as the champions within the community who actually are setting norms for the community, not lift the company. And so unless those shapers emerge, it's hard to sustain this kind of new power. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of the most effective online communities, you see shapers emerge. You think about a platform like Wikipedia and those most active editors, they're not just involved with editing those pages. They're really setting the norms about what kind of platform Wikipedia is and how people should behave on that platform. hmm
1: very interesting, very interesting. You know, I'm curious, what kind of developed your thinking on the new power? You know, maybe some of the books you read or some of the the thought leaders you followed to sort of, uh, you know, help you germinate these thoughts because they're, they're, it's very interesting take. You know, I would think that like Malcolm Gladwell's Tipping Point would be one of them, maybe some Seth Godin books. Uh, I have no idea, just it's interesting to ask a musician, you know, what music do you like,
2: <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, look, I mean, there's an academic that we cite at the end of the book that we really admire, who's done a lot of really interesting thinking. His name is Yokai Benkler. He's at Harvard. And Yokai is um, one of the leading scholars of networks and of how that applies uh, to commerce and culture. He wrote a book in 2006 called The Wealth of Networks, which has influenced us a great deal. And it talks about sort of peer production. So what are these platforms where... People are voluntarily producing things within a platform and creating economic value by doing it. Platforms like Kickstarter, et cetera. What are the dynamics within those platforms? And then, you know, what are the risks that those platforms get co-opted by others? And, you know, what we've seen really in the last kind of 10 years is a lot of concentration of power, even when initially we thought that many of these trends were going to decentralise power. So one of the distinctions that we often make is more participation does not necessarily mean that power is more decentralized. And that's a really important distinction to understand.
1: Okay, very, very interesting. And it seems like it has to be a topic area that affects a lot of people. Otherwise, you know, can you do this in a small way? I mean, when you look at movements, anything that you'd share or study, the business example, those are two giant companies. You know, the other movement example, Me Too, right? You know, that's a big movement, affects potentially half the adult population. Can it be done in a, a smaller way? Like, you know, I mean, you know, any thoughts about it just in a community or an interest group? I mean, you know, we live in this world of the long tail, and there are so many very niche-oriented groups and interests in the world nowadays, uh, and the internet's all enable that, of course. Can it be done in smaller ways? Yeah, look, I mean, the book describes many examples that are very small scale. This doesn't just apply to big phenomena.
2: When we were writing the book, we thought often about an imaginary dentist, right? A dentist whose job it is to get his patients to improve their health practices, right? Mm -hmm. Their oral health. Now, In order to do that, what she or he needs to do is have the patients themselves peer to peer spread that message because the brochure in the waiting room, you know, as we all know, does not get enough people to floss. Mm-hmm. And so there, these techniques are relevant to anyone who is building a community or anyone who is leading, for example, a team of people in an organization who needs to change the power dynamics within that team and those organization and unleash the agency of the people that you serve or that you manage or that you lead. And this is, I think, also very relevant to small businesses. We tell the story of lots of small businesses and entrepreneurs who've used these techniques and created much larger businesses. There's a, a story uh, of a group of guys from Scotland who created a beer brand called Brewdog. So they basically create this brand, which is craft beer and associated pubs. And they build the crowd into the entire model. So they they raise money for the brand through crowd equity. They call the people who have given them that money equity punks. They involve their equity punks in the manufacturing of the beer, in the design of the the labels, Mm -hmm. in the marketing. And then they have a big annual meeting where all of these, effectively these shareholders, come together for a huge party that's also an exercise in collaboration and community building. So it's sort of an example of an end-to-end model that has scaled enormously. They're now a very valuable company in the UK. But using that mindset, right, where you actually care Mm -hmm. about who these people are, you actually want to give them a role. Their role is more than just consume. Their role is participate. For businesses, that's a really different mindset, but it can be very liberating. It can be very powerful when you do it well.
1: Sure. Yeah. Very interesting. You know, so be collaborative, be engaged, be social. How much equity do those punks have usually? Is it like a little sort of Kickstarter kind of campaign concept where people can put in 25 bucks? Well, that's not you don't get equity on Kickstarter, but uh, you know what I mean. Or, or are yeah. they significant equity Shareholders with you know minimum investment of twenty five fifty grand. More the
2: former, it's small contribution. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head with Brewdog, but you could buy into Brewdog for you know a hundred bucks, something like that. Mm-hmm. It was that order of magnitude. So basically, you have got a stake. Now remember that this the the behavioral economics of this is that when you buy in, even at a small level, you feel a far greater sense of connection and ownership. Oh, I agree. Uh, and, that, mm-hmm. and that thing gets endowed and built upon. So mm-hmm. what they did is they took people who might have given them $100 and they really made them feel connected to the company. Mm-hmm. And then those people became the marketers, but also they were the brain trusts for the company. And that is a really interesting model when you can get it right.
1: Yeah, very interesting, very interesting. Okay, what else do you want to share about the new power before we wrap it up? To give folks
2: a little bit of a, a sense of the, the material we cover in the book, you know, we talk about the workplace and how this plays out in a workplace context where you've got this collision of people with new power values operating within very old power structures. I think we do some really interesting thinking around, well, what, what does it look like to manage in a new power world? How do you manage beyond your payroll? How do you handle these sort of crowds that are often at your gate when these new power movements arrive? We talk a lot about the transition from old to new power. Like, how do you know when to use new power, right? When do you turn to the crowd? And when is that likely to backfire? And how do you roll out these kinds of new power experiments within a within a more traditional structure? So that's sort of some of the train we cover. We talk a lot about movement building and, and spreading ideas, which we've already covered, I think, quite well in today's conversation.
1: Yeah, very interesting. Give out your website. You can learn more about the book at thisisnewpower.com.
2: And the book is available around the world. It's now in many, many countries in many languages. So uh, depending on where you're you're listening, you you can find it via the website in all of those places.
1: Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. All the very best.